Off the Ball Daily. A home for your favourite podcasts from Off the Ball. Everyone wants to see what Djokovic is doing at home and, you know, everyone wants a little insight into what's making him the best tennis player in the world. Subscribe to the Off the Ball Daily podcast feed right now. You're so unexpected. It's one of those you had to be there moments. You had to be there. It subsequently genuinely did change everything about my life. You had to be there. Yeah, it's the latest episode of You Had to Be There. Delighted to be joined in studio with myself and Kathleen with the uh, author, Paul Howard, of course, creator of Russell Carroll Kelly as well. Paul, how are things? Brilliant. Really good. Yeah, great to be here. This is, uh, it's, <laughs> it's stressed out a lot of our guests trying to pick five sporting events that they've seen Paul was 100% the most organised man I asked him to do this weeks ago and literally straight away sent me the five picks with every single detail about yeah. them I was so impressed normally you're hounding guests looking for these but well, you well I was straight. waiting for the call to be honest <laughs> <laughs> it's one of those slots that people enjoy you're, you're looking back at events that you've you've actually enjoyed this was my desert island discs like yes. you know for years like I listened to des- I have my desert island discs there ready and I had my five you had to be there as ready as well <laughs> yeah so there's no were there, were there ones that haven't we'll, we'll not spoil the, the five just yet but were there ones just outside the, the five that you well Katie Taylor I know everybody picks Katie Taylor yeah. and 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 I picked Katie Taylor and um, I, I it's the last time it's the last time I cried right in London watching sport I was in a I was in a bar in Belfast. I was in the Rock Bar on the Falls Road Brilliant. in Belfast, and I was I was at the Pubble Festival, and I was asked to read uh, a, some Ross O'Carroll Kelly stories yeah. at, the, at the festival. And Katie Taylor's fight was at some point in the middle of my reading, <laughs> and I was told beforehand as soon as the fight starts, we're going to interrupt you. I'll put up my hand. Danny Morrison, who was who arranged the festival, he put up his hand to stop me from reading, and uh, I, I had to go and sit down. They pulled the screen down and they we all watched the fight and as soon as the fight was over then they put the national anthem on we everybody sang our Ron Naveen and then they said they pulled the screen back up and went away you go and I did the second (laughs) but the emotion of that um I I it's a long time since because I I I wasn't a sports reporter anymore I could Mm -hmm. actually be yes I could I could kind of get invested in it just enjoy her story you know and where she'd come from and how she'd um you know, they, they'd created an Olympic sport because because of this unstoppable force, this yeah. this uh, women's boxer. You know, and um, I was at I, I saw Deirdre Gogarty fight years earlier, mm. and pe- I think it was at the National Stadium. Uh, people got up and walked out because they could they couldn't sit and watch women boxing. Women boxing. So, so to see where Katie Taylor had taken it, it was um, it was very emotional for me. Yeah, we had Deirdre Gogarty in the studio here she not too long. About that that, that, yeah. that yeah. week of, of Katie's fight, and she was she spoke very eloquently about it and how far women's boxing has come in particular. Um, but that that's that's an interesting point. Even when you work in sports media, you see something like Katie Taylor's fight, and you probably after the fight are analysing, oh, how can we cover this? You, so you can enjoy the fight for what it is yeah. at the time, but you're also in the background thinking, how do we cover this? How do we? We should get her, get her on, get her coaching, yeah. or whatever. And when you step away from it, as I did in 2005, you can actually enjoy, enjoy matches as a fan, yeah. enjoy fights as a fan. What a concept. Yeah, <laughs> and, be to- and, be, and be totally partisan for someone yeah. or against someone. And yeah. it's, um, that, was, that was one of the most exciting things for me about, about, I mean, I hated giving up sports journalism because it was a job I loved. But there was, especially the first few years afterwards, I went, I can actually go to an Ireland football match yes and, and boo you know? <laughs> if I want yeah exactly no uh, no Liverpool football club appearances on this uh, on these five which I was surprised at very surprised at so everyone, anyone follows Paul on Twitter will know that Liverpool football club yeah. appears often enough yeah I didn't I mean there was the, I mean lots 
like lots of things involving Liverpool have moved me. Like the first, uh, I started following Liverpool really because they won the 1977 European Cup final and I was allowed to stay up late. Uh, <laughs> so I kind of thought, you know, I'd be a Liverpool fan because I can stay up late. And I, the following year, they beat Bruges in the final. Yeah. And right the way up to the final, I was allowed to stay up late for every single match. So that's why I started following Liverpool. So those th- matches mean a lot to me. Um, and obviously the Champions League finals since then. Uh, but it just so happened that I had five uh, events that moved me uh, more. <laughs> Even more so. Well, your five strong picks, we'll get into them now. Um, so we'll start in chronological order, I guess. 1989, the All-Ireland Senior Hurling Final at Croke Park. This is Tipperary against Antrim. Tip 424, Antrim three goals and nine points. Uh, and Nicky English a performance because Antrim scored 3-9, but Nicky English himself scored the exact same as them, 2-12, uh, which kind of sums up his performance that day. Man of the match, undoubtedly. Yeah, I, I had absolutely no interest or knowledge in hurling, none whatsoever. Um, growing up, uh, it, 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 it wasn't on my horizon at all. I was a football fan and that was it. But I went to Irish college and um, I made a load of friends from Tipperary and they were always talking about hurling. And I remember we were in Murrayock in Kerry, County Kerry, and we climbed up a mountain uh, well, it's probably a hill in Kerry terms, but it felt like a mountain because <laughs> yeah. it took us about an hour to get to the summit. And, and and it was so we could get reception to listen to, it might have been a Munster hurling final or an All-Ireland semi-final. And I remember sitting with the lads and I have a photograph of me with the lads sitting on the top of this hill listening <laughs> to this match on the radio, which just seems like such an eternity. Archaic, now. yeah, yeah. So... One of, one of the lads, um, a guy called Tony McKenna, who is from Borussia Kane in North Tip, um, he had a ticket for the All-Ireland Final, which was wasted on me. Absolutely wasted. The 1989 All-Ireland Final. He said, do you want to come? I said, yeah, yeah, I'd love to come. <laughs> and I was on the hill. We were on the hill. It was, he was with a bunch of his friends as well. And there was a crush on the hill. Right. And this was a few months after Hillsborough. Yeah. So there was real worry. I mean, I was worried going to sports matches after Hillsborough. Yeah. And there's a bit of a crush on the hill. So we said, let's go down the canal end. And we moved down to the canal end. And we're standing there and there's a crush there. And I don't know whether they opened the gates or whether we climbed the fence. I think we may have climbed over. But they, we, the stewards didn't stop us. We all got on the pitch. And I was behind the goal on the pitch. I and mean, that seems inconceivable <laughs> in this day and age that they would allow fans to sit behind the goal. Um, but I'm sitting there on the pitch with the lads for the match itself for the match oh, for, the, for most of the second half actually and if you, if you watch if you can find it on the clip on YouTube the incident I'm talking about now uh, the, you can see us all the backs <laughs> of fans behind the goal on the like pitch school sports day locking out the, the, the advertising hoardings and anyway this, this particular I was experimenting at the time with not wearing glasses I was going through a sort of vain period in my life thought it was cooler yeah I thought yeah. it was cooler not to have glasses but the problem was I couldn't see like I couldn't see anything right especially something like hurling as well hurling <laughs> for the little schlitter yeah anyway Aiden Ryan and I know it was Aiden Ryan because I, I watched it back on YouTube hit this uh, diagonal pass across the field probably 50 50 metres it was unbelievable but all I saw behind the goal was this blur in the distance and then this Schlitter dropping and Nicky English caught it and he caught it was cross body caught it like you know backhand yeah Uh, I thought I thought he caught it on the full but I've watched it since and it and it and it bounced right and he caught it and bang into the back of the net and it was it was just that perfect like the perfect golf swing or the perfect knockout punch it's like thwack. Yeah. you could hear it mm. 
into the back of the net. The net, just just as a dream, you know, the sort of dream goal. You want to see the the net rustling and everything. And we ran onto the pitch, and I don't remember. I, I mean, I was a, I was from Dublin. I had no interest in hurling, but it was just like you get kind of every, wrapped up in it. Yeah, I got, got when I watch riot scenes now on television. Like <laughs> I think of that moment. Like it's just like, all these lads with these sort of yellow and blue flat caps. They were in fashion at the time. <laughs> they ran on the pitch, and I just sort of ran with them. And it was the last. It was Nick English's second goal, I think, and it was this, it was the last meaningful moment of the match. Yeah. And it sort of crowned this performance. I mean, Antrim weren't in the match at all. It was just it was a coronation rather than a mm-hmm. rather than a than a than a sporting competition. Um, but Nicky English, I mean, it was it was extraordinary what he did. You know, just to watch it fall, to catch it. Like, yeah. You know, I mean, you must. I mean, Nicky English did that loads of times. But I mean, you, you know, most hurlers must dream of. Scoring a goal like that doesn't mean it's an easy skill though to do because like you, you, you watched Nicky English and uh, he was slightly before my time. When you watch videos back, you're like, this guy was silky smooth and would look at home possibly in, in today's game as well. I know the yeah. game is completely different in, in many ways than it was. Yeah. But like as you say, that second goal, the game was over. Uh, it was like it was the biggest winning margin in the final apparently since Antrim's last final appearance, which had been 1943. And even Tipperary, like I think it was 18 years since they'd won Liam McCarthy, so they were ending a famine. Yeah. But to do it in that style and Nicky English. And Nicky, like he, he was, he was just ultra cool as well. Like you know, when I watched the clips back, like the eighties, because I'd be looking at the eighteen eighties, it felt yeah. that remote from today. But he had that sort of Patrick Swayze from Ghost hair and everything. Like his hair didn't seem to move. Yeah. <laughs> it was sort of perfectly parted. Real cream gel. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It was amazing. Uh, we'll, we'll move on to the next one. That, that was an extraordinary one. Tip fans, I think we'll, we'll uh, be right on board with the nostalgia for that one. This one's right up my alley as well. Uh, a bit of snooker for all of you snooker fans out there. This was Alex Higgins uh, against Dennis Taylor. This is the Benson and Hedges Irish Masters. Even the fact that uh, you know it's sponsored by a, by a, a cigarette company mm. uh, is is crazy to think of nowadays. But back then, I guess that was the done thing. Uh, the Irish Masters at Goffs in Kildare, 1990. Spoke to Ronnie O'Sullivan recently, and I can't remember if it was off air or on air, but he spoke so like candidly about Goffs and how much the players loved Goffs. Yeah, as a venue, just just and, and you said it on air uh, beforehand. How close the the fans were to the actual arena and the, yeah. the table. I mean, it, it, though, people who who were there uh, in 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 Kildare, it, it, it was the heyday of snooker, and um, the venue was perfect because it was the the old Bloodstock Arena. Yeah, and it was so it was it was round. The arena was round, and they just sort of put up this sort of wooden. Uh, frame around the, the in the in the middle and left enough room for the players to yeah. <laughs> have a Just bit of elbow nice. room, yeah. and and then you were there and you could, if you sneezed, it was it was no matter where you were in the arena, it was loud enough to make a player stop. Um, it, there was no mobile phones in those days, yeah. and I certainly didn't have one. Um, but every. If you you were you were terrified to shift in your chair in case it put the players <laughs> off, and you could literally reach out and touch them. So the the intimacy of the I I don't think I was ever at a sporting event that had that kind of intimacy that you felt that close. How big would the crowd have been? Um, not big, maybe sort of four hundred, five hundred people. So it mm. was it was sort of small enough that you know. You, you could make eye contact with other fans and kind of go, you know, yeah. you, it, it felt so, it felt like a, like, you know, when you go to a gig 
uh, when, when somebody does an unplugged gig for 400 people in Vicar Street, a yeah. big star. That's what it felt like. Yeah. It felt like you were seeing these 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 players who are used to big venues, uh, but you were seeing them in a in a small venue, and it was it was an extraordinary. The Irish Masters was an extraordinary tournament, yeah. and it was just very much of its time. I'd love to see it returning because I never got the chance to see snooker at Goffs, but it's definitely one that was on my to do list if it had if it had stayed around. Alex Higgins and Dennis Taylor, like you think, oh, two Northern Irish snooker players, they must have got on very well. But for people who don't know the backstory, <laughs> these two lads uh, didn't quite see eye to eye. We know Alex was a bit of a a maverick and a character. Yeah. I mean, they did at the start. I think when, when Alex Higgins went to, to England first to try to make it as a snooker player, Dennis Taylor set him up with a flat and, you know, rented him a television. Remember the days of renting televisions? Dennis Taylor rented a television for Alex Higgins for, right. to make this place a little more homely. So they were close at one point, but they fell out over the years. Mm. Um, I think it was a personality thing. I think they... they I mean, Alex Higgins at that point was... Let's be honest. He w- he was unhinged at yeah. that point, you know, the, with the, the the especially with the drink uh, and the you know whatever else. Yeah. Uh, we were seeing the end of Alex Higgins, really, and it was really really sad in those years to witness it. But it was compelling as well because you never knew what he was going to do. He had this hyperactive energy about him. He was he was one of the few people. I ever saw who could who could walk into a room and immediately change the energy of the room just by walking in and I and I don't it wasn't usually Dark for the energy. best yeah, yeah it was, people went quiet when he walked into a room yeah. um, I remember years later Liam Gallagher walking into a room and I kind of felt the same energy from Liam Gallagher and that's unpredictability isn't it you don't it's know the what the unpredictability do. it was yeah the, the hyperactivity the one word from this man and it could all kick off that's what I that's what you felt about Higgins and before in in March 1990 uh, Dennis Taylor and Alex Higgins were had played together on the uh, Northern Ireland World Cup team mm. there was a World Cup tournament in March and there was a row about at the time they said it was about prize money but I think it was more than that I think you know Taylor wanted to hug the table or sorry Higgins wanted to hug the table and Taylor was saying well this is my match and Higgins said no I'm going to I'm going to go and make up for my loss in the last match and anyway they lost and there was a huge row and during the course of the row uh, the troubles had never ever come up between them Mm -hmm. both Taylor and Higgins uh, had left Northern Ireland before the start of what we know as the modern troubles yeah. so so it had never really been an issue between them and Higgins said uh, the next time you go back to Northern Ireland I'm going to have you shot and Higgins was from was from Sandy Row and uh, Dennis Taylor was from Coal Island yeah. and I had never really thought about their religious affiliations before I actually you know my my own prejudices I thought it was the other way around yeah sorry <laughs> and you're alright like, um, a name like Taylor we were even saying yeah. this morning yeah. you think was of a Protestant Completely. background but not yeah and then, and then you know and, and Higgins I, I just presumed he was anyway yeah. but it, so, but, so it never came up as an issue until this and it all blew up it was all over the papers and the following week they uh, ended up in the quarterfinal together at the Irish Benson Hedges Irish Masters in Goffs and I went with a friend of mine and again, it's the it's the closeness, it's the intimacy, the tension. Um, I I don't remember a single thing about the match. <laughs> I don't remember a shot. I don't remember a break. I had to check the score. I had to I had to go online to find out that Dennis Taylor won five two. Five two, yeah. 
Um, so you were saying to me that you had a, like a headache for about two days afterwards just yeah. because you were concentrating yeah. so much on the moment. I had this migraine, <laughs> and like I said to you, you know, you, you're you're sitting there and you're trying you're trying not to move anyway. Like uh, if you're at a football match or a rugby match, you're up and down and all the rest. But at snooker, you're 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 frozen in the seat like mm. that and you're tensing the whole time. But this was t- a tension I'd never ever experienced. Uh, I was there as a fan, um, and. I got this migraine right the way across my shoulders and neck. I never, ever get migraines, but it was from just that, just yeah. the tension. And the build-up to the match as well, the backdrop to the match, I the suppose. backdrop to the, the match. You could, you, could, you could smell it in the air. It was, you know, the, this, the, the atmosphere. It was so dark. Um, it was ama- But it was amazing to be there. It was probably four or 500 people there. Yeah. And um, How did they interact with each other? Well, in the moment well that's the amazing because that's all any of us watched mm-hmm. and they because ju- none of us watched the snooker we're just watching it was like people watching mm-hmm. and you're looking at you know they, they, re- they didn't look at each other at all they did Alex Higgins especially just refused to make eye contact <laughs> and Dennis Taylor there was a bit of that sort of challenging stare mm. going on you know but Higgins just didn't didn't make eye contact at all and um the other thing, the other great thing about golf was you'd sort of spill out into a corridor and you'd find yourself backstage with with players. Yeah. You know? it security was, was high, obviously. Not a, the security was non-existent, <laughs> you know, and um, it was um, it was a it was a brilliant event. But that match in particular, I'll, I'll never forget it. It's just the most stressed I've ever been, the yeah. most worked up I've ever been. And I there was a little bit of me was pulling for Higgins because. You know, if you're a sport, sports fans generally love a comeback story. And that would have been such a great comeback story. But what I didn't realize at the end was that I was witnessing kind of end stage. He was never the same after that. You know, he came, he got banned for threatening Dennis Taylor and assaulting a a press, a tournament press officer. And he never came back again. You know, it was, he was kind of a sad case after that. It was really awful to watch. Yeah big time I think Ken Doherty told the story about working as an usher at Goffs when he was a kid and uh, Alex Higgins came up to him before a match and said if I ask you for an orange juice I mean vodka orange juice and if I ask you for a vodka orange that means double so like <laughs> I think he wrote that story in his book but it's just brilliant yeah. like Higgins probably throughout the match drinking these vodka orange yeah, juices yeah. Uh, it was a great pick uh, definitely That that's an event that only 400 people can say they were at it but no doubt there's probably 4,000 or 40,000 out there who say yeah, they were like all the greats exactly yeah. The next pick, Paul, is another brilliant one. Steve Collins versus Chris Eubank. This yeah. is at Mill Street in Cork in 1995 for the WBO middleweight and super middleweight titles. Uh, a really famous event. You think of the Parky Cueve fight later in the year, but the Mill Street one was just... Mill deep. Street was it. Mill Street was it because it just had everything going for it. Like, it was Paddy's weekend. It was the 18th of March. Mm-hmm. Um, it was in the Green Glens Arena in Mill Street where the Eurovision had happened. Yeah. It was, it, I mean, the idea that, that this fight wouldn't be in London, that it would be in this remote part of Ireland, <laughs> like, you know, it, it, it was, uh, the circumstances behind it were bizarre. Yes. You know, Steve Collins, ha- he'd want to fight Eubank for years and I, I think Eubank was kind of avoiding him because Steve was in that, what they what they call in boxing the who needs him class mm. in that he's going to give you a really really good fight mm. and there's nothing in it for you you know there's no money in it like he's not a big he's Steve really wasn't a big draw um, and there's a chance he could beat you yes. so I think Eubank had avoided him but Eubank had fought Ray Close twice two really really controversial uh, fights because like a lot of Eubank fights in that period they were really close and he got the decision and at least Often one of 12 them, rounds as well yeah at least one of them I thought close beat him 
Um, And so Close was awarded a third fight on the just off the back of how controversial these previous two fights, the decisions were. And then Ray Close, there was a problem with a brain scan and Steve was offered the fight in January, Mm. very late. Two months out, literally. Two months out. And I was I was working with Steve on a book at the time and I'd spent probably of the previous year I'd probably spent three or four months with him in Romford in Essex and Steve had this idea he wanted to do a book like Eamon Dunphy's Only a Game Mm. uh, where it was kind of a year in the life of a professional boxer and the start of the book he beat Chris Pyatt to win the world the WBO middleweight title and that was the start of the book Uh, and then the book was going nowhere it was a real Pyatt was a real sort of so what kind of moment because it was a world title but no one really rated Chris Pyatt in world terms and then Steve was trying to defend the title and we went to Hong Kong in October of 94 and the fight got called off the day beforehand because the fighters purses weren't paid and then the fight, his fight was rescheduled against an American called Lonnie Beasley it was rescheduled for Boston in November and Steve or December and Steve got sick and got a, a throat infection so it was called off again so this was the book it was, the book was in ruins and then in January Steve rang me and said I've been offered the Eubank so suddenly a little twist you know, on the book yeah, yeah. And, and so it suddenly it, so I was and all the stuff that came excited. before kind of made it more of a story as yeah. well yeah <laughs> and I was personally excited I was yeah. like, like this is the book now you know <laughs> so the fight itself Steve disappeared for about six weeks and I think this is why you know, there was all this intrigue around the fight. Steve disappeared to one of the Canary Islands with Tony Quinn um, of Tony Quinn yeah. Health Foods Shops and um, uh, who, who was who was practicing hypnotism at the time. And, um, you know, he had all these kind of relaxation tapes and everything. And Steve disappeared off with him and there was no contact with anybody I mean I know Roddy I did Roddy Collins his yeah, brother Roddy's book as well and you know Roddy said I had no contact with him at all while he was away and uh, and he came back and he was like Steve was a basket case when he went away like he was mm-hmm. physically physically broken down he kept getting colds and you know his head wasn't in it and everything and, and Tony Quinn whatever he did remade him out there but they came back and there was this story doing the rounds that Tony Quinn had hypnotized him so he wouldn't feel pain, right, in the ring. And this was really serious. Yeah. Because, and Chris Eubank got really, really spooked by it because um, pain is your body's way of saying the fight's over. Nice. Yeah. And Eubank had had experience in the ring where he fought Michael Watson and Michael Watson had ended up with life-changing mm. injuries from this fight, from this knockout punch that Chris Eubank pulled from nowhere at the end of the fight, which he was losing. And then a few weeks before this Collins, U- uh, Collins Eubank fight, uh, Nigel Benn had fought Gerald McClellan and Gerald McClellan ended up, you know, his, you know, with, yeah. with, with life-changing injuries as well. So, so, boxers and injuries in the ring was very much in the news when Steve arrived back and said I'm not going to feel any pain and I think it really really spooked Chris Eubank Um, the fight turned I mean Steve Steve Collins fought brilliantly which I was expecting because I'd been following his career right from the start he fought some of the toughest boxers in America like Mike McCallum uh, Paul McPeak um, Kevin Thornton you know he'd done his apprenticeship 
and this was his moment. Um, but the, 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 Steve, Steve put Eubank down in the eighth round with a body shot and Eubank got back up. But he looked beaten. He was, he was gone. And then the fight turned on this moment in the 10th round where Eubank came out at the very, very start of the round, walked across the ring and nailed Collins with a right. I mean, it was an unbelievable punch, mm. um, which Eubank was always capable of. Mm. That's what made the fight so exciting, that Eubank could be battered and still pull out a, 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 you know, a, a fight-winning punch. He did it against Watson. He did it against Nigel Benn. Collins went down. He got up. I mean, he looked okay, but that's the moment to charge in and finish a fight, you know, when a, yeah. when a fight was hurt. And Eubank didn't. He stood back and he started dancing. And that was always a thing. People always said Eubank had lot because of the, firstly, the Watson fight, but then later on watching what happened with Gerald McClellan, he'd kind of lost his atmosphere. His, his, his um, appetite mm. for that that kind of destruction that thing that requires you to rush in all fists blazing and finish a fight he just couldn't do it and Roddy and I have, we, we argue all the time about this Roddy reckons that Eubank knew he'd hit Steve with his toughest punch it was hardest punch and, and Steve still got up yeah. and that's Maybe why he, he stood back yeah. I, personally I, I, I think I think he, he just didn't have it in him anymore but anyway it was an amazing occasion especially because I was writing the book and I thought now we have a book <laughs> Hallelujah. what I remember about it was um, apart from being Paddy's Weekend the guardie were the, were the security on the night so if you look at pictures from the fight uh, it's just guards everywhere like when Steve is walking to the ring he's surrounded by about 300 guardie it's like he's going to court yeah. and, uh, and, and but the other thing I remember is that most of Dublin Dublin's gangland criminals were there as well you know right. so this kind of uneasy mix mm. of, of law and order and criminals uh, in the audience it was and it kind of the it was crackling the atmosphere down there you know the second fight at Porky Cueve in September it 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 wasn't a, it wasn't a great fight it was mm. and it definitely didn't have that atmosphere remember at this point when Steve fought Eubank in that first fight Eubank had never been beaten before and he was Barry Hearn's darling, even though Steve was married by, managed by Barry Hearn as well. But he was Sky Sports' darling as well. Like he was a mi- the first million pound a fight fighter in England, and, and and unbeaten. And a lot of the fights, it was it was kind of felt that, you know, he should have lost that one, yes. but he always got seemed to get the benefit of the doubt. Everything about that pick is amazing. You've got the guards, you've got the Paddy's weekend, the hypnotism. I mean, just the venue in Mill Street as well. It's just one of those. The Walkman as well. Steve was, Steve was sitting in his corner before the fight with like like what the Walkman headphones, and I, I don't mean the Beats, you know, those big ones or even yeah. the little buds that they have now. He had like orange. Do you remember the ones which are which are little there yeah. Sony Walkman? Like they were sort of orange foam. Uh, headphones and the and the the hood over him, you know, it was it was amazing. Like you know, especially the drama around it really contributed to it. We've got we're bang out of time, but we've got two two picks, and maybe there's one of them you have, you have more grow for than the other. But two cork picks: Sonia Sullivan Olympic five thousand meter final in Sydney in two thousand, uh, and of course Roy Keane's performance against the Dutch in that World Cup qualifier in Lansdowne in in Dublin in two thousand and one. Are there either of these that that stands out more so than the other for you? Well, I think Sonia. See, Sonia. Uh, that was my first Olympics, and when you when you want to become a sports journalist, it's usually because something has moved you in your childhood. And for me, it was the Olympics. I always wanted to go to the from the time I watched the 1980 Olympics and the 84 Olympics on television. I wanted to be a sports journalist. So Sydney 2000 my, was my first Olympics. I remember being at the opening ceremony, 
and you know 110,000 people in this incredible stadium in Sydney uh, and John Williamson singing Waltzing Matilda and everybody singing along and I was in tears you know and yeah. it was amazing but that night in the stadium Sonia I mean I'd followed Sonia's career uh, you know which was she always looked so assured until 1996 yes. and then she became a totally different athlete you never knew she was unbeatable up between 92 and 96 and then after the Olympics in Athens from that point on she you know obviously you know she was she was disappointed at the Olympics in Athens or in um, Atlanta mm. it was a disaster for her and then uh, 97 I would cover the world championships in Athens and it was exactly the same you kind of thought she's finished and then she came back and she won the world cross country championships the double in 2000 and but we still didn't know going to Sydney her form was up and down all that she summer was, yeah, we didn't yeah. know where she was and to to she won silver I mean I, I, sh I think it should have been bronze um, or sorry I think it should have been gold Gabriella Zabo who won the race there's, there's always going to be a shadow over Zabo and I, in my mind there's always an asterisk against mm. Zabo's name because um, she retired uh, from athletics three years later after this uh, scandal in which uh, Activegan, this um, yes. drug that's very similar to EPO, was found in the boot of her car, which was being driven across the French border, mm. where she, she had a training camp in France. And border police stopped the car and found this Activegan. And um, a teammate of hers said it, said it's mine. It's not for Gabriela right. Zabado. But but there will always be a question mark over Zabo. So in my mind, in my mind, Sonia won won gold. But it was an extraordinary performance from her. Yeah. Quite incredible. Uh, we've no time literally for the last uh, pick with Roy Keane, but I guess the Overmars tackle setting the scene that day just led to... It's been in a few of our choices, to be fair. I think Roy Keane and Katie Taylor have been the two yeah. that have appeared most often. For, which yeah, is, which is fair I think enough. if you were there at Lansdowne Road that day, uh, it's uh, that's the moment. Even more even more so than the 2002 World Cup for me, yes. that, that was the moment beating Holland because it wasn't our usual you know, 1-1 one, one draw. Mm. You know, we didn't win 1-1 yeah. like we usually did. We beat Holland <laughs> We won one ten men. Yeah, exactly. Uh, great picks, Paul. One of my favourite episodes, I think. To be fair, it's just uh, incredible. And the fact you had a snooker one in there as well, <laughs> right up my own street. Uh, fantastic. Really good stuff. That is Paul Howard's version of "You Had to Be There." Just so unexpected. It's one of those "You Had to Be There" moments. You had to be there. It subsequently, genuinely, did change everything about my life. You had to be there. 